You're listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. We first talked about the looming financial crisis about three weeks ago. That was on May 14th. At that time, we could see the crisis coming, but details were still vague. Since then, several courts have been forced to begin budget cuts that have included layoffs and furloughs. Yet even now, all we can say about the national situation is, it remains fluid. Dread over the upcoming economic statistics turned to excitement on Friday, June the 5th, as the unemployment figures were better than expected. Still, unemployment remains well above the highest number seen during the 2008 recession. What do we know now after several weeks have gone by? Have courts adapted their plans to the changing economic situation? I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. Our focus continues to be on how courts are coping with the coronavirus crisis. Today we have with us Zanelle Brown, Court Administrator for the Third Circuit Court in Detroit, Michigan, Mark Weinberg, Court Administrator for the Seventh Judicial Circuit in Daytona Beach, Florida, Angie Van Skoik, Court Administrator with the Municipal Court in Breckenridge, Colorado, Chris Gaddis, Court Administrator for the Superior Court in Pierce County, Washington, Liz Rambo, Trial Court Administrator in the Lane County Circuit Court in Eugene, Oregon, Mike Rowdy, Court Executive Officer for the Superior Court in San Diego, California, and Rick Pierce with the Pennsylvania Administrative Office of the Courts. Thanks to all of you for joining the podcast today. Our first question was submitted by listener Jeff Barlow. He wrote in a question about court budget strategy in the face of the coronavirus. Here to ask that question is Jeff. So, Jeff, what's your question? As your panelists plan for budget cuts, I'd be interested to hear which are following a thin-the-soup strategy and which, if any, are even considering a ration-the-soup strategy. By thin-the-soup, I'm thinking that no services will be cut, but things may take longer. Court hours may be shortened. Time to hearing and document turnaround time may increase. But all services, case types, specialty courts, and matters previously provided will still be provided at some level. By ration the soup, I'm thinking that some things are either not done or are put on indefinite hold. So, for example, drug court might be suspended or jury trials in some civil cases might not be scheduled until budgets allow. Normally, thin the soup is far and away the most politically palatable. But I wonder if the pandemic has changed that dynamic in some places. Liz, in response to Jeff's question, what's happening with the Oregon Judicial Department, the OJD? In Oregon, our budget cycle runs through June of 2021, and as of yet, the judicial branch has not been given a budget cut by the legislature. Um, That could happen. It it would happen after a special session, which is yet to be scheduled. But regardless, we expect that we will have to address the issue of our budget for this last year of this budget cycle. And the OJD is exploring all of the available strategies, including all the ones that Jeff mentioned. We have 
revisited case-type priorities that were established in previous budget reduction scenarios and updated them to reflect the situation that we're in now. And it is a possibility that we could end up, if budget cuts are extreme, putting lower priority case types on hold temporarily. That's a strategy that the OJD has done before. But in the meantime, our branch has recognized that we're in a situation right now where our workload is down. Due to the COVID environment, our workload and our case filings, at least in Lane County Circuit Court, are down about 30%. And I think that that percentage is pretty true around the state. So as a state-organized judicial department, we have recognized we're down in our caseload, and we have recognized the opportunity right now, between now and July, to do some advanced planning for upcoming budget reductions by doing some furloughs, both closure furloughs. There are three of those between now and the end of June, and some long-term furloughs of a few staff where it's possible to because of the reduction in workload. So although we don't have our budget reduction number or our strategy identified because we don't have that number, we're making every effort that we can right now to address the fact that the OJD is very likely to have a budget reduction number to implement over one year of a two-year budget cycle. Just for our listeners, can you define closure furlough? A closure means that the courts are closed for a day, and the chief justice presents an order closing the courts that extends the statutory timelines during that closure period. So we had one in May, we'll have one in June, and one in July. Our chief justice is committed to open courts, so it is only the recognition that our workload is down significantly for this short period that has made it possible or even palatable to close the courts for one day a month. Sunil, how about in Detroit? In Detroit, we have a unique situation with our funding unit. We have an agreement with our funding unit for our funding for the court, which is in effect until the end of this fiscal year, but it's a multi-year agreement. So we're in the process of renegotiating that. We're aware that our funding unit We'll be facing a $450 million deficit over the next 18 months. So we are working with them. We've reviewed the contracts that we have in place. And if there was any contract that wasn't deemed mandatory right now or needed to be negotiated because of changed circumstances, there are not as many people on site, that type of thing. We've done that. Also, when it comes to our staffing, Before we even got here, there were some challenges as far as filling some vacancies. And right now, the challenge is filling those vacancies because of doing the interviews and things like that. So I think when it all comes down, we're actually going to be a ration the soup strategy. We haven't cut any of our major programs or processes, but it may take longer for things to actually occur. Mike, what is San Diego doing? We actually, uh, just this last week, received some allocation targets from our Judicial Branch Budget Committee based on the governor's proposed budget, which would, of course, cut across state agencies and courts. And We're a state-funded entity, of course, as you might know. So at this point, we're looking at about a 7.5% reduction, which may not sound like much, but 
this was going to be the first year that we had recovered from the recession and that our budget would have actually been higher than it was at the start of the recession. And of course, that has gone by the wayside. This is actually going to throw us back about seven or eight years. And so we already during the recession had cut numerous services and civil courtrooms and that kind of access in our branch locations and centralized things downtown. It looks like that's going to continue. And it looks like we're going to be moving towards, we've got a voluntary separation program that closes out this week to see if we can reduce the workforce in, in a gentler way. Given the outcome of that, we could be looking at additional layoffs and or furloughs because there really isn't much left in terms of the soup. So things are going to stretch out. They're going to take longer and we'll have to see what happens. Interestingly enough, as a side note, there's a conflict between our governor and the legislature over the budget cuts across the state. I think the legislature is more inclined to recommend smaller cuts and then to wait to see if the federal government's going to step in at some point and bail out the states. The governor isn't sharing that perspective, so his cuts are larger and more painful. It's very likely that they could pass a smaller level of cuts, but in October, should nothing happen, we could be facing a second round of cuts. So that creates an interesting budget strategy. We'll see where that lands. Rick, what's the strategy for the Pennsylvania courts? Uh, I think that in Mr. Barlow's analogy of thinning the soup and rationing the soup, uh, as some of the others have suggested as well, we're actually going to be doing both and we'll have to consider both. There are going to be some jurisdictions because we're a decentralized state, there'll be some jurisdictions that will find based upon the resources they have available that they will uh, actually be able to do perform all the functions, but it'll take a longer period of time. And I think that's what initially we're starting out. I think there'll be others that we have, as we have talked about at many times on these podcasts about uh, suspending the civil jury trials and uh, other court functions and court events that may not be taking place for quite some time. So that, that rationing the soup analogy is also taking place as well. When we first talked about the budget several weeks ago, many of you were unsure how deep the cuts would be or when they would start. What do you know now about the court's finances that you did not know several weeks ago? Angie, how about in Breckenridge? Um, there's not a whole lot different about the budget cuts than what I knew before. Um, really, the biggest thing for me is that so much of my budget gets tied to how the town itself does, because um, a lot of the, the revenue that we get is from uh, sales tax and things like that. So depending on how our local economy does is going to really be dependent on what our budget looks like within the next year. Mark, how about in the Seventh Circuit? Well, similar to Angie, our situation here is not much different uh, today than it was a month or so ago. We're funded partially by the state, mostly by the state, partially by the counties. Our state fiscal year begins July 1, and our county fiscal years begin in October. Uh, we're still kind of in a, in a wait-and-see posture right now. Rick, how about in Pennsylvania? Uh, what do I know that may be a little different from what about a month ago? It's about the same, but I say I will say this, that we do know that the Commonwealth's going to adopt and probably operate with a five-month stopgap budget. I call it a stopgap budget in, in that regard. The response that I would say that I'm going about to give is really predicated upon what Congress does regarding its aid to state government. So we're projecting a $5 billion shortfall in the Commonwealth, and how can that be made up? 
you know, if the federal government provides some relief, the rest will be made up in the, the little revenue streaming in. We do have some monies that set aside in that extraordinary relief or emergency relief, some called rainy day funds. And of course, there's the budget cuts. You know, the judiciary, like in many states, in Pennsylvania is, is not any different in the sense that it's less than 1% of the Commonwealth's budget. Judges' salaries and benefits though are protected by the Pennsylvania Constitution, so cuts will have to come from somewhere else. I will say though that today I just was reading a very interesting article in the journal uh, Law 360 regarding what actions states will likely take or not take. And what I've been saying for others that may have asked regarding uh, continuing education and travel and those kinds of ancillary court expenses that are in the administrator's budgets, which are generally the first things that get cut, I said the impact may not be as drastic this year but as it might be for future fiscal years, as which was evidenced by what we experienced about 10, 12 years ago with the economic downturn in 2000, 2008 to 2009, uh, the first year or two, it was not as evident as it was in later budgets regarding those particular items and those particular court functions as well. By now, several of you have had to either lay employees off or require them to take unpaid furloughs. For others of you, this prospect is looming large. How are you working through this process? Specifically, what have you told your court employees? And are there certain types of employees who are exempt from these cuts? Liz? As I mentioned earlier, we're right in the middle of a furlough process here in Oregon. And in my role as the trial court administrator, I have been in regular contact with employees about the budget situation both what we know and what we don't know, because I think that employees deserve to know both what we're doing and what remains to be determined. And I've had that contact by email, a lot by email and a lot by teleconference, because we have a lot of employees, so Zoom meetings wouldn't even make sense. But I've heard back regularly from people that they appreciate knowing things, even when the answer is we don't know yet. For example, as I mentioned, we don't know what our cut number is here in Oregon yet. And and just having that information out there has been really positive from what I've heard back. And to answer your final piece of that, no employees are exempt from the furlough situation. Management and staff are alike taking the furlough dates, so no exemptions. Zanel? When we started out, Pete, with the pandemic, we started off with the paid furlough and that was on March 16th and it went for eight weeks. After that, we returned the employees to work either on site or working remotely or a combination. Since then, we have not had to institute furloughs. What we are looking at as we're negotiating with our funding unit is to eliminate the conferences for this year and possibly next fiscal year, any membership dues we were paying and any bonus that we were giving based upon merit and longevity. We've communicated this to the staff through their union representation and then for the non-represented through their manager. So the, the information is out there and they know. And I believe everyone is on the same page that we can give up the other things I was talking about, the conference membership dues and things like that for the sake of people having a place to come and work 40 hours and earn that salary. Chris, how about in Tacoma? In late March, we were notified that 
come April 15th, we would have to have 5% cut for 2020 and 2021 mapped out from the court's perspective. And so we worked really hard trying to figure out ways that we could do this. And from a personal perspective, I was really pushing to not have to do unpaid furloughs. There were options out there through unemployment and the the federal additional unemployment pay that I, I thought that if we could take advantage of those opportunities and take money out of our budget, I really wanted to go that route. We just found out that we were able to move any savings that we have this year projected into next year. So if we have to hit a 5% in both years, if we can hit 7% this year, only having to come up with 3% the year after. The plan that we have put in place right now, we have put some people on what we're calling unpaid standby status. That allows them to remain employees of the county and they still have medical benefits, but then they can apply for unemployment payments along with the federal additional $600 per week. So they're still receiving some compensation. Some people are, are made whole, others are close, but doing that process, we've been able to keep furloughs out of the question for now. Certainly, if something comes up out of the state's projections, we may have to revisit it. But for now, we're pretty confident that we can do this without furloughs. Last week, I was able to make phone calls to bring the unpaid standby status employees back. So over the next four weeks, we'll be bringing people back into the building. And come July 6th, we should be fully staffed with all of our people back in the building. So we're really excited about bringing them back into work, even though they were still getting paid, they, they really wanted to be here. They, they missed being at work, being with their, their coworkers. So it's nice to bring them back into the family. What, if anything, have you told the public about the budget cuts? And on what platform did you use? Zanel? So we haven't completely seen where our budget cuts are coming from. We don't have a final agreement with the funding unit. I can imagine that when it's time to tell the public, it'll be through media and it'll probably be along the lines of the messaging. This is how delivery of services will be impacted. And here's some of the reasons why. And then that's where if there's something that's going on because we don't fill the vacancies for cost saving reasons, that's how we'll be actually put into the media for the public to consume. Chris? I would agree with Zanel. If there is something that comes down that, that increases our budget cut, we would then have to look at, at reducing services. For example, our 20 plus year drug court, is that an option? Is felony mental health court an option? Services that we supply to the, the public, are those services an option to cut if need be? Obviously, that's a, a question for the judges as a whole, but those options would the idea that we'd have to communicate with the public would be more along the lines if we were cutting services. Like I mentioned previously, we have been lucky in the fact that our numbers, we can hit our, our cut numbers without service cuts to the public. Uh, we did not feel that we needed to reach out about the unpaid standby status for our employees because it, it wasn't really impacting the, the public. You know, we're, we're doing things remotely, and so the, the public really hasn't seen the impact if this were to extend once we open our doors to full service, we would definitely notify people that you may see some delays that you can expect due to budget cuts. But as of right now, we are lucky enough not to have to worry about that. 
Liz? In Oregon, the Chief Justice has notified the public about our court closures, and that's just the extent of what we have done so far, because again, as I mentioned, uh, we don't have our number yet. So we've been just making sure that the public is well aware of the three days in May, June, and July that we are closed to the public so that they are not inconvenienced. On the April 30th episode, I asked if your courts plan to be more lenient toward defendants and their time payment schedules. So let me ask if the situation has changed. Will your court make or continue to make accommodations to those in financial stress? Specifically, will your court continue to extend time payment deadlines? Angie? Um, yes, as, as always, as long as the defendant reaches out and lets us know that they're not able to make their payment, the judge will grant their extensions without any penalties just to give them enough time because he doesn't want them to end up in a default of any sort. So um, that's something that we've you know always had available to them and I think something that we'll be offering to a lot more people in the very near future. Mark? Well, in Florida, payments are made through the uh, clerks of court. So that process is managed by that office. As I mentioned back in April, though, I have every reason to believe that the courts will work with individuals as it relates to issues they may be having related to required payments. Mike? Well, early on, we uh, extended the payments out 60, 90 days. So, so that put us out into the June, July timeframe. We've continued to basically move those deadlines out. We've turned off all debt collection uh, programs, recognition of the economic situation that people are facing. We continue to work with people. I will also say that we continue to get payments on a regular basis from a number of people as well. So we're taking a very flexible approach moving people out as they uh, make that request to the court. And I see us continuing forward with that until we see better news coming from the economy. Does your court charge to establish a time payment schedule? And will you waive that charge? Angie? We don't charge uh, for a time payment schedule. I know there are other municipal courts in Colorado that do charge a minimal fee for them to set up a either a payment schedule where they're paying so much you know per week or per month or just to have an extension of some sort and that's something that we've never added on like I mentioned earlier we don't really want to have to make it harder um, for defendants to pay us so we try to keep any extra fees to a very minimum amount. Mark? As I mentioned in the previous question, that process is managed by the uh, elected clerks of court. I believe statutorily there's a fee associated with, there's either a, a one-time fee for establishing a plan or it can be broken out in terms of monthly installments. My understanding is that those charges will still be tacked on to the time payments. Rick? A lot of these uh, time payment schedules take place in our limited jurisdiction courts, although they do take place in our general jurisdiction as well. I will say that from the 
statewide perspective, there's no charge for a time payment. Now, when you factor in where this subsequently could go, uh, when you're talking about collection agencies working with with a particular litigant, uh, that's a different story, and that's that's up to the collection agency regarding any kind of a time payment. But anything established by the court at the outset, there's no charge for time payment. Mike? Pete, we have a, a one-time $35 fee that is uh, in statute, and we have continued to impose that fee and haven't had any um, any real kickback on that. Does your court charge to view online documents by members of the public who are not in the courthouse? And will you waive that charge? Chris? So that's a, a clerk responsibility, clerk of the Superior Court. We do not handle any of the documents. At the beginning of this, the clerk met with the executive branch and they quickly uh, waived those fees moving forward through this pandemic time. I think once the building starts to open up and people are coming into his office, it may be a different story, but that's something that he'll have to figure out. It is a, a tremendous amount of money that comes into the, the county every year based on those fees. So I don't know if it's something they want to walk away from, but they'll have to review it on their end. Rick? Uh, the judiciary uh, doesn't charge to view online court documents. They don't assess a charge in the sense that it's viewed as part of the public access policy. The documents that one views in a courthouse through a kiosk uh, will not be treated any differently from an individual viewing those same documents remotely that might be outside the walls of the courthouse. If you'll permit me, though, Pete, I would like to uh, rephrase a little bit of that question as well as to whether or not the courts would waive a service fee or a charge for online payments. And that is a different situation. And our answer right now is no. At the beginning of the pandemic, the decision was made because it was asked that the cost the Commonwealth would incur for waiving any credit card charge, which is a, a convenience fee of $2.75 per online transaction coverage, would we be asked to be waiving that for the defendants or for the litigants paying for that service? And the decision was made that there was uh, too much to absorb because that $2.75 uh, goes to pay for the merchants, the, the credit card companies like MasterCard, Visa, and American Express. But to answer your original question, we do not charge to view online court documents. I've seen some reports warning that in the months to come, we may experience a large increase in default judgments, landlord-tenant evictions, and home foreclosures. What can your court do to prepare for such an influx? Mark? Unfortunately, we, we have a bit of experience in this regard in that we, we had quite a number of those sorts of actions during the uh, recession. So what we'll probably do is, you know, dust off those plans that we undertook back in uh, the 2008, 2009, 2010 timeframe, dust those plans off and uh, take a look and see what we might be able to do in this current environment. Liz? As Mark mentioned, we're doing everything we can do to prepare. We're looking at caseloads for landlord-tenant cases, small claims, and other civil cases being down right now by about 50% for those case types. So we know that once we open back up, we expect to see an influx of those case types, especially after the governor 
relieves some of the restrictions on landlord-tenant matters. So what we're doing to prepare is by trying to get as much of what we anticipate our budget reduction out of the way in advance with the furloughs that we're doing now so that when our caseload heats back up again, we have the staff on hand to deal with it. Those case types that are heavily down, particularly landlord-tenant and small claims, are very heavy staff workload over judge workload because a lot of the work, particularly on small claims, is delegated to staff for defaults and things like that. So we just needed to make sure that we had staff available to do that work when the anticipated caseload comes. And when it comes, we don't know when it will come yet, but we know it will. And a lot is dependent on so much of what's going on with the vaccine development and with the governor's restrictions on landlord-tenant matters. So we just await those next steps and do everything we can do to be prepared. Zanel? I think we'll probably be more hit with the home foreclosures, either through taxes or mortgages. And with the tax foreclosure, we have a special docket already where our chief judge hears those. So I think that we're prepared on that. With the mortgage piece, we have discovery masters, who can help move matters along. I think with the settlement conferences that our judges will be able to handle it. So as Mark was saying, this isn't the first time we've been here and we have some tools that we've used before that we'll definitely take out to use again. Rick? Maybe. (laughs) Okay, I have to go a little bit more into detail. Okay, sure. A lot like what Mark and Zanel have said, and as well as Liz, I think some of our courts are prepared, or at least are are employing case management strategies to address the increase in filings. At present, the governor extended the order uh, that was staying evictions and the timelines computed uh, from May 11th to now July the 10th. So the courts still have some time, a little bit better than a month, to start to prepare themselves Uh, for cases that could be, based upon the timeline projections, could begin to come into our courts after July the 10th. But to answer your question, too, I think that in some jurisdictions, the wave of these cases just may not come, particularly in some of our smaller jurisdictions, but in others, it may be overwhelming. Uh, Some of our larger jurisdictions, like Philadelphia and, and Allegheny County, which houses the city of Pittsburgh, employed a mortgage foreclosure court. Uh, a lot like what Mark has uh, insinuated before, a diversionary or conflict resolution type of court that, you know, you can see widely throughout the United States and was really prevalent 10 years ago during the financial crisis. We believe that the infrastructure remains and these courts are preparing to reinstitute that court uh, immediately prior to the pandemic and for about three or four years prior. The need and demand for such a court waned in many parts of the Commonwealth, but we do anticipate, uh, particularly when you're talking about mortgage foreclosures, these actions will take place in our general jurisdiction courts and there will be a need to address them. I know times are still turbulent. But what is your best prediction for how the next 12 months will play out for courts, both in terms of the budget and continuing to respond to the coronavirus? Angie? Well, I think for the the next 12 months, I just I can't see the the caseload being anywhere close to what it had been um, with in like even the past couple years. 
just between lack of visitors and just uh, kind of a lack of any tickets getting written. So like the the revenue that we'll have will be severely diminished compared to how it used to be. So I, I really see we have a hiring freeze and a, a merit increase freeze for at least the next year. I can definitely see that being something that the town would decide to continue uh, for a little bit longer until things kind of start having an uptick more than what they will in the very near future. Chris? Our budget is in a better shape than some jurisdictions in Washington State, but still we will be taking a cut. There's no doubt that will happen. I am fairly optimistic, and that's what I told my employees, fairly optimistic or hopefully optimistic. I don't know which one works better, but trying to to look at, at everything that's going on around us and the stock market gaining. There's some house sales in Pierce County are still, houses are selling for sometimes over market in days here. So we have some positive outlook for our budget process, and hopefully that will continue throughout the year. We will find out on June 22nd from the state on what their numbers look like. But I think for us, at least, the budget is not going to be as big of a hit. That's if everything goes all right for the rest of the year. Now, if we see spikes in the coronavirus, if we have to go into another stay home, stay healthy order, that will have unknown impacts on the court. The good news is we have a playbook now to do it, but it could be devastating for for our court and all the other courts in Washington State if that does happen again. Mike? Well, I see. I think in terms of the budget, it's going to be very difficult. It's going to be very tight. Many of you might have read our governor's predicting a $54 billion shortfall over the next essentially two-year period. Even if economic activity picks up to some degree, I'm not sure that it's going to close that gap. So we are going to be looking at thinning the soup, if you will, to go back to that question, and tightening down. As far as the coronavirus, much like the previous comment, uh, if there's a spike, then I think you're going to see a retrenchment of some of the progress that we've been able to make. Regardless of whether there is a spike, I think people are going to continue to remain reluctant to resume activities as before, and that will impact our ability to find jurors who are willing and able to come to court. To the extent that we are able to get our facilities up and running, I think our productivity is going to be significantly diminished as we're looking at delays and longer hearings through social distancing and remote conferencing. And then the question of how we're going to do jury trials continues to remain a big one. So uh, lots of challenges ahead in the next 12 months. My thanks to Angie, Liz, Mark, Zanel, Chris, Mike, and Rick today for sharing how their courts are dealing with this unfolding budget crisis for the courts. I also want to thank listener Jeff Barlow for submitting today's first question. And as always, thanks again to you court professionals out there listening and keeping our courts working. Our communities continue to thank you for what you do. The article from Law 360 that Rick Pierce mentioned during this episode, titled States Unlikely to Raise Taxes Amid Pandemic, Panelists Say, by Maria Coclinaris, is available on the podcast landing page under Additional Resources. Join us next Thursday, June 18th, as we continue our conversation with our guests. Remember, if you have a question about how the courts are coping with the coronavirus, email us at podcast. that's all one word, 
at nakamnet.org. We'll try to answer your question on a future episode. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management. Thank you.